0: and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen.
1: Great, well it's been an absolute pleasure to be with you all this week and uh, to see such hunger for the word of God. i um, not just in this tent, I was at the 19s to 24s last night and uh, some of the questions we were asked, there was a Q&A session and some of the questions that we were asked were so deep, I was uh, struggling to answer them. Um, but wonderful to see a group of 19 to 24-year-olds so excited about Jesus Christ and great to see all the folks here. I wish I could uh, be able to speak to you all personally and individually, but in the size of this tent, it's not possible. But thank you so much for your hunger to listen. Um, It's a two-way street, the preacher and the listener. And let me also uh, say my sincere thanks to two very special groups. Um, First of all, the staff, who work here at the Keswick Centre all year round. Uh, they're a fabulous staff and you wouldn't believe the amount of work that needs to get done just to get this convention on. And then of course all the series of teaching and training projects throughout the year. They're a fabulous staff led uh, wonderfully by James Robson so we're very grateful for them. And I want to give my huge thanks as well to the volunteers um, who are keeping on smiling even though they, uh, they're standing there welcoming us and serving us from early morning till late at night, yeah. We're so very grateful, and, and if you're interested in becoming a volunteer, um, I'll tell you two things. By the end of your time here, you'll be absolutely knackered, and you'll also be full of joy. I think that's been Keswick experience for years now—knackered and joyful, joyfully knackered. So uh, I, I commend that to you. I'm sure you'll all be running now to become volunteers here. But uh, we're delighted for those who serve us. Anyway, this is the last of our five sessions in this lovely letter of Ephesians so it might be helpful to do a brief recap of where we have been. And if you can remember back to last Monday, we considered all of our blessings in Christ, Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Our blessings are spiritual. We are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Our blessings are personal. We have been chosen and adopted and redeemed. Our blessings are eternal. We will reign with Christ and they are dependable. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Then on Tuesday, we asked if we are growing in this glorious gospel. Are we growing in faith, hope, and love? Are we growing in spiritual insight so that we can grasp our future hope and so that we can grasp the full extent of God's power? And are we growing in our appreciation of Christ We are united to him now, and his future is our future. Then on Wednesday, we looked at what the gospel was producing, God's plan for the church. The church is the hope of the world. It's God's vision for a lost world where foreigners and strangers are brought near through the blood of Christ. It's God's vision for a new humanity where we are reconciled to God and to each other. And it's God's vision for a spiritual temple as we are led by His Word with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And then yesterday we considered our commitment to this gospel. The gospel is a mystery revealed to us. It is a message entrusted to us as we take it out to our friends and neighbors. And it's God's wisdom displayed through us to principalities and powers We have so much to be grateful for as God's people, don't we? So let's show our gratitude by living out the gospel every day we live. And now this morning in our final session, we're going to look at Paul's wonderful prayer that closes the first half of Ephesians. It's what you would call a doxology. You would normally find a prayer like this at the end of a book, but Paul places it here in the middle as he meditates on God's amazing plans for his people. Paul feels compelled to pray that the church will glorify the God who has redeemed her. Paul's prayer here reminds me of an amazing prayer that I heard in a seminary classroom back in Chicago in the autumn of 1999. It was always a special time when the professor rose to his feet to pray. So special, in fact, that classmates used to come early to class just to make sure they were there to hear the prayer. But on this particular day, there was an added poignancy. It had just been announced around the school that the professor's wife, a lady in her mid 40s, had been diagnosed with cancer. And I'm sure his heart must have felt heavy that day as he got to his feet. In the last few hours, he had to comfort his wife as she heard the devastating news. He had to phone his kids who were all away at college and pass on the news about their mother in as sensitive a way as he could. And then somehow in the quiet when he could grab a moment for himself, he had to come to terms with the fact that his own world had been turned upside down. And as the professor stood to pray that day, a deafening silence filled the whole room. Thoughts were racing through the students' minds. Would he be able to pray? If he could, would he be angry with God? Or would he give out some kind of stoic, formal prayer so as not to blow his cover while deep inside he was filled with anxiety and questions? But as the professor prayed that day, the whole room began to light up with the presence of God. I'll never forget it. He praised God for his goodness, for his faithfulness, for the fact that God was unchanging. He didn't ask anything for himself or for his family. He didn't even bring up his situation before God. No doubt he had done so many times that day already. But all he could speak about was the glory of God. Here was a man who enjoyed an intimate relationship with God, and in this moment of crisis in his life, he clung on to this relationship with a God he had loved and prayed to all of his life. And the greatest compliment I could pay my professor that day was that I I wasn't thinking as I left his class about his crisis. Instead, my heart was longing to have the kind of prayer life that this man enjoyed with God. And in Ephesians 3, we are drawn into a cold, damp prison cell, and we find a man on his knees praying to God. And during his prayer, he never once mentions his personal crisis— Instead, his heart is filled with the praises of God. Paul prays to a God he has loved for many years, and in his prayer, he doesn't ask for his pain to be relieved or for his chains to fall off. Paul's deepest desire as he prays is that God will be glorified through the church that he is building. And as we listen into Paul's prayer today, perhaps we will long to have the kind of prayer life that Paul enjoyed with his heavenly Father. This prayer gives us three principles this morning, and if we take these principles to heart, we will enter into a deeper communion with God than we have ever known before. The prayer teaches us firstly that we need reverence to enter God's presence. We're going to have this deep communion with God. We need reverence to enter God's presence. That's verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, "'I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name.'" So Paul kneels before God, he thinks of God as his Father, he thinks of himself as part of God's family. Paul's prayer here doesn't strike us as particularly unusual, but it would have been very strange for a Jew in Paul's day. Jews rarely knelt to pray. Most often they would stand with their arms outstretched to heaven. Scripture doesn't command us to adopt any particular position as we pray. There are examples in the Bible of people standing, people sitting, people bowing, people kneeling, even people on the ground prostrate with their faces flat to the earth. It's not so much the position that we adopt, but the attitude that we adopt as we pray that really matters to God. Three other times in the Bible, we see people kneeling. And it's always at moments of great emotion and earnestness. So Ezra kneels to confess the sins of Israel after they've returned from captivity. Stephen kneels in the book of Acts, you'll remember, as he is about to be stoned to death, the first Christian martyr. And Jesus himself kneels in that moment of moments in the Garden of Gethsemane as he cries out to God before the cross, And Paul here kneels before God out of earnest reverence. And yet while he shows reverence for God, he still refers to God as his Father. That was not a contradiction in his mind. The Father in the Jewish household was not seen in the sentimental terms that we often see fatherhood today. Yes, a child could call their father Abba or Dad, as we learned from Ephesians 1. But the father was also seen as the judge in family affairs. Peter says, 1 Peter 1 verse 17, you call on a father who judges each man's work. There was great respect. There was even fear for the father figure in Jewish society. And we need to be aware of the trend in modern Christianity to see God as our pal, As Steve Brady says, he is not the Lord Almighty. He is the Lord Almighty. And our prayers are not meant to bring God down to our level, but to bring us, our souls, up to his. We pray to our Father in heaven. We say, holy is your name. One day we're going to stand before our heavenly Father as our judge. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of how we've lived our lives. Now, I'm never going to have a great day of reckoning with my earthly Father, but I will with my heavenly Father. The American pastor Warren Wearsby said, I fear the fires, but not of hell. I fear the fires of heaven. So Paul kneels in reverence before God because he knows that his heavenly Father will one day be his judge. But the reverence that Paul shows God doesn't mean that Paul is scared stiff of God. There's a difference between having a a healthy fear of the Lord, which Proverbs tells us to have, and being scared stiff of God. If I was scared stiff of God, I would never want to pray I wouldn't want to share my deepest needs with Him, but that's exactly what God wants us to do. He invites us into His presence. He welcomes us. We're told to pray without ceasing. In fact, more than that, 1 Peter 5, the same book in which Peter refers to God as a father who judges, Peter also says, cast all your cares on God because He cares for you. So being reverent towards God doesn't mean that we kind of stand at this fearful distance from Him all the time. Possibly the most iconic scene in all the Gospels is from Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. After the son has lived his life of reckless abandon, he comes home, and it's as if his father has been standing at the window of the house every day just longing for his son to return. And at last, he sees him in the distance, and he does what no self-respecting Jewish father would have ever done. He gathers up his long robes, he tucks them into his belt, and he charges out to meet his son before he can even get to the front door. And he throws his arms around his son and covers him with kisses. No Jewish father would have ever done that. But it's a wonderful picture of how God wants to be with you. He welcomes you into His presence with the same unbridled joy that the Father welcomed His lost son home. So while we ought to revere God, we can also approach Him with delight. Reverence and joyful intimacy go hand in hand when we come into God's presence, And that's the kind of prayer life that God wants us to have with Him. But the privilege we have in entering God's presence is even greater than we have perhaps imagined. God's fatherhood here is extended beyond believers on earth who call on Him in prayer to take in God's cosmic family in heavenly realms. Verse 15 says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. What are these families in heaven? This verse is actually quite difficult to translate from the Greek, but the idea is that God's family ultimately extends beyond every believer on earth to believers in heaven who have gone on ahead of us including dearly departed loved ones who died in Christ, their souls have left their bodies, and they are now gone into Christ's presence. It also includes angelic powers whom God has created. They all form part of God's cosmic family. So every time that you and I pray, we come into the presence not only of the Lord of the universe, but under his lordship, we come into the presence of believers in heaven who are right now enjoying God's presence in glory, and angels who are surrounding his throne in worship. And there's such a close connection between what Paul is saying here and that glorious scene that we find in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12:22, 12, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That is the heavenly family that we join every time we pray, every time we worship as a community on earth. So, as the musicians are cranking up their piano and guitars and drums, if we could peer through the heavenly portal and see our cosmic heavenly family joining in the worship with redeemed mortals on earth, I tell you, our sense of reverence and awe would only increase. But this is the access that we have now. As Gentiles, remember, we who were formerly without hope and without God in the world, We are now brought into God's cosmic family, bowing our hearts before our Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of angelic beings who declare his majesty and cry, holy, holy, holy. Now doesn't that make you want to pray? Doesn't it elevate what we feel as our sometimes feeble prayers as we understand the cosmic realities of our prayer life? Whatever you're going through in your life right now, you are part of a heavenly family which no man can number who are cheering you on, even as you kneel in reverence and awe before the Father who has brought you into His cosmic inheritance. So this prayer of Paul, it reveals three principles that can deepen our fellowship with God. Firstly, we need reverence to enter God's presence and all the glorious realities as we pray to God in Jesus' name. Secondly, Paul says, we need power to grasp God's love. That's verses 16 to 19. We need power to grasp God's love. In verse 16, Paul says, I pray that God would strengthen you with power. In verse 18 again, he says, I pray that you might have power. Power. Now, when we think of having power from God, we probably think of power to proclaim the gospel or power to perform miracles, but that is not why Paul is asking God for power here. The power that Paul is talking about here is connected to our experience of God in our inner beings. Notice that, verse 16. Paul prays that God may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So, this is not about any outward action that you need power for. You need power from the Spirit in our hearts so that we can fully experience Jesus Christ, because there's so much to experience. So, how does the Spirit's power in our inner being work? What's it there to achieve? Well, let's follow it step by step, tightly in these verses. There's so much truth in these verses. To begin with, the Spirit empowers us so that we will know Christ in a deeper way. Verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that seems strange to us at first reading. I mean, Paul is writing to Christians here. Does Christ not already dwell in our hearts? Well, yes, he does. But Paul is teaching us here that our experience of Christ in our hearts is a dynamic thing. As we grow as believers, as we walk in step with the Spirit, we can enjoy a greater and greater, a deeper and deeper experience of Christ living within us. We first welcomed Christ into our hearts through faith on the day of our conversion. He dwelt in our hearts from day one. We were justified by faith, we were covered in Christ's righteousness, and we were ready for glory the day we trusted in him. But there is so much more of Christ to experience than that initial moment of joy and peace when we first welcomed him. And in fact, this paragraph ends with a mysterious idea, verse 19, the mysterious idea of being filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does that mean? God wants to fill our whole personality with Christ. And that is an ongoing process of inner transformation as we get to know Christ through the word, through prayer, through communion and fellowship with other brothers and sisters. What the reformers used to call the means of grace. So as we devote ourselves to the word of God, to prayer, to fellowship and communion, The Spirit empowers us to uncover more and more of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this process of increasingly experiencing the full wonder of Christ in our inner beings begins from the solid platform of knowing that we are loved unconditionally by God. That is the springboard for all of our growth in Christ. So look at the second half of verse 17, Paul says, and I pray that you… Being already rooted and established in love may have power. So, from the moment we are saved, we are rooted and established in God's love. Rooted is the image of roots digging deep into the soil. The word established here speaks of the deep foundations of a building. This is our basic, stable position as Christians from where we launch into this ever-deepening experience of Jesus Christ. And so we don't pursue Christ to get God to love us, to kind of prove ourselves to God. We pursue Christ because we are already loved, rooted and established in love. And then verse 18 outlines the next step in inner transformation. Paul says, I pray that you might have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, there's a parallel here with Paul's first prayer back in Ephesians 1. Back in chapter 1, you might remember Paul prayed that we would have power to grasp the full extent of our future inheritance and the full extent of God's power. Now he prays that we might have power to grasp the full extent of Christ's love for us. So again, this isn't power for us to do miracles or to witness effectively. This is power that the Spirit gives us to grasp all that we have in Christ. Jesus' love is so profound. We need power to grasp its immensity. Paul says the love of Jesus is multidimensional. It's like an infinite cube that we could get lost in. Verse 18, Jesus' love is wide. It's wide enough to take in the whole world. There's not a person in this world who is excluded from the love of Jesus. He loves you deeply this morning, whoever you are. Jesus' love is long. It lasts forever Jesus loves us with the same intensity today as he did when he surrendered his hands to the nails of the cross. Jesus' love is deep. It reaches down to the worst sinner in this world. It doesn't matter what you have done against God in your life. You could be a murderer or a rapist or an adulteress or a con artist. Jesus still loves you passionately well-known Christians like Chuck Colson who found Christ in prison after the Watergate scandal, St. Augustine who fathered several illegitimate children in his pre-Christian days, John Newton, the slave trader, Nicky Cruz who led the, the violent Mau Mau gang in New York, and perhaps especially the Apostle Paul himself who imprisoned Christians and approved of their martyrdoms. There are countless men and women who were at the bottom of the pits When Christ's love found them, and all the wonderful things that they ended up doing for Christ stemmed from the fact that they were overwhelmed by the love that had reached down to them. Jesus' love is so deep. The international chairman of Bible Study Fellowship is in my congregation in Aberdeen. And he told me recently that one of the most fruitful BSF Bible study groups in the world right now is being conducted among prisoners on death row in a Texas prison. And this Bible study is so vibrant that the prisoners now call it life row. I thought that was fabulous. There's another BSF group that's operating in a high-security prison in Latin America, and some of the inmates there were told that they could move to a lower security prison for their good behavior. But they refused because none of them wanted to leave their Bible study group, which was the inspiration for their good behavior. Jesus' love is so deep, it reaches the worst of sinners. And Jesus' love is high, says Paul. His love propels the worst of sinners up into heavenly realms. He gives us a throne and will lavish his love on us for the ages of eternity. And Paul is saying here the Spirit gives us power in our inner beings to help us grasp the infinite love of Jesus. Jesus. And the Spirit gives us this power as we pursue the Word and prayer and fellowship with the saints and all the means of grace. If you're not pursuing those things, you'll never experience this. And Paul doesn't want this love of Christ to be a kind of theoretical thing that we only read about in books. He prays a seeming contradiction. If you look at verse 19, he prays that we will know this love that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? The idea of knowing here is not the idea of learning something from a textbook. It's experiential knowing. You might remember how the King James Version expresses Adam and Eve's sexual relationship. It says, Adam knew Eve, and then they had a baby. So clearly, Adam wasn't reading a textbook about Eve. And so when Paul prays that we will know Christ's love, he really means he wants us to experience the depths of his love, to feel it, not just read about it in a book, And that is precisely what the Spirit produces in our inner beings as we meditate on Scripture and pray and long in stillness, as we worship with full hearts as a gathered congregation and are spurred on by other believers. Everything's there for us if we'll grab it. Stuart Briscoe tells the story of the little boy who fell into a barrel of golden syrup. And he cried out a prayer, Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity. (laughs) And what a great prayer for us to praise that we might know the love of Christ in a deep way. Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity. Help me to experience the love of Christ in full measure. I've read about it, read loads about it, but I want to really feel it. And interestingly, Paul adds in verse 19 that we need power together with all the saints to grasp the love of Christ. So in addition to soaking in Scripture and prayer, the Spirit helps us experience something of the rich love of Jesus within community. So as we talk about it together, as we sing about it together, as we express the love of Jesus practically to one another, the Spirit helps us feel Christ's love. A while ago I had the privilege of seeing a Christian man feed his mother who has Alzheimer's disease. He goes in every lunch and tea time to a care home in Aberdeen, and he spends an hour each time feeding his mother yogurt through a syringe. It's a long and laborious job. His mother can only take very small mouthfuls at a time, but he's done it every day for months now. And he told me it was no burden to do this for his mother. She had loved him sacrificially all her life, and now he was just returning the favor. And as I stood in that care home and watched him do it, I think I experienced the love of Jesus together with all the saints. Brothers and sisters, when we pray for power in our churches, don't just pray for power in preaching or power in evangelism. Pray especially for power to grasp the love that Christ has for us. Pray that we might all experience as a community together the boundless riches of Jesus' love for us. Pray that as we sing glorious words together, we will make music in our hearts to the Lord. That's what the Spirit wants to produce in us. And as we do all of that, Paul says, verse 19, we will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, the mystery religions were very popular in Ephesus, and these mystery religions used to talk about entering the fullness. That's why Paul's talking about fullness here. The aim of life, said these cults, was to enter the fullness of the spirit realm, and people in these religions would get caught up in ecstatic trances. And it was very tempting for new Christians to feel that they were missing out on some special spiritual experience. It was okay to believe in Jesus, but you needed to top up your spiritual experience. You needed to tap into these ecstatic experiences that the mystery religions offered. You needed to enter the fullness but Paul is saying here, you don't need to run after any ecstatic experience that other religions claim to offer, or even other versions of Christianity. You have everything you need and more in Christ. You have been rooted and established in God's love from the day you were converted, and now as the Spirit goes to work in your inner being, you can go deeper and deeper into the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and you can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The real fullness that these mystery religions are aiming for can be found in the God you already know through Jesus Christ. And so the call here is to deepen our prayer life, to pour over Scripture, not just kind of take off our Bible reading in the morning. Psalm 1 says to meditate on the Word of the Lord day and night, to experience the love of Christ in the community of saints. If you give love, you will receive love, to sing spiritual songs to each other and make music in our hearts to the Lord. As you pursue all of these means of grace, The Spirit will fill you more and more with the love of Christ as the waters fill the sea, and you will grow to the measure of all the fullness of God. There is enough resource in God to fill us up forever. But if we're to experience this, it means setting lesser things aside. And that's where the rubber hits the road. It means considering other things as rubbish, as Paul says in Philippians 3, so that you can pursue Christ with all your heart. That's the real challenge here. Are we ready to pursue the full riches of the Trinity when there are so many other things to distract us in life? G.K. Chesterton said, it's not so much that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's that it's never really been tried. We get so distracted, we get so entangled by our own sinful desires that we take less time than perhaps any previous generation to really dwell on Christ, to really meditate on His Word, and commit to all the means of grace that God has given us in gospel community. I mean, I I try and read Puritan writers like John Owen but I have to do it in small bursts because I I can hardly cope at times with the depth and richness of every sentence. You feel you're sitting at the feet of a man who, who knew something of the fullness of God. His thought life is so rich, I can barely take it in but this passage is here to challenge us towards a deeper contemplation of the love of Christ and the fullness of God than we have ever known before we need quietness and stillness and setting aside other other distractions to get this this isn't mysticism this is the deep relationship with Jesus Christ that you and I were created for are you ready are you willing to swim in the deep end and really know Jesus Christ, counting everything else in your life as loss, setting aside all other loves so that you might pursue your Savior for all that He's worth. So Paul is presenting us in this prayer with three great principles that will deepen our communion, our fellowship with God. Firstly, he says, we need reverence to enter God's presence. Secondly, we need power to grasp God's love. And thirdly, he says, we need confidence to live for God's glory. That's verses 20 and 21. Confidence to live for God's glory. Why does God seem sometimes not to answer our prayers? You ever ask that question? I bet you have. Is it because God is not able to answer our prayers? Well, according to these verses, that's just a ridiculous suggestion. Not only is God able to answer our prayers, He is able to do more than we could even dream of. Verse 20, He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. The phrase is literally, He is able to do far above what we ask or imagine. Paul used that same phrase far above earlier in Ephesians. He said, Christ is far above all rulers and authorities, and because of his supreme position over the whole of creation, he is able to do far above all we ask or imagine. He is a far above kind of Savior. So we are free to ask for the most outrageous prayer requests, and God is able to answer. I can pray for people across the world. I can pray for countries and nations that I have never been to, and God is able to answer. I can pray for colleagues to be saved who are currently showing absolutely no interest in Jesus or are positively hostile towards Him. God is able to answer. I can pray for revival to come to Britain, and God is able to answer. Don't you think? Folks, it's easy in days of moral decline in Britain to lose your confidence in God. God's mighty works are something you read about in biographies or histories of revival, but God is still a God today who can do more than all we ask or imagine. If our confidence in God is small, then we are idol worshippers. We're certainly not worshiping the God of the Bible. We come to a God who can do far above all we ask or imagine, And perhaps we don't see His power as much as we would like because we don't really believe in His power. There is a mysterious correlation between our faith in God and His power at work. You remember that passage in Mark chapter 6 where we're told that Jesus could not heal in His hometown of Nazareth because they didn't have enough faith. It's interesting that Jesus' hometown didn't have enough faith. The people of Nazareth had domesticated Jesus. They could not see him as anything more than the son of Joseph and Mary, who they used to see run around the streets with their kids. And that passage is there to show the danger of having limited expectations of the God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Have we domesticated Jesus? Like the vicar who once said, Everywhere Paul went, there was a riot or a revival. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. If we have domesticated Jesus, he is no longer the God that Ephesians presents us with. And don't you love how Paul keeps piling up the superlatives in Ephesians? It's not just God's power, it's his incomparably great power, chapter 1. Christ is not just above heavenly powers. He is far above all rule and authority. It's not just Christ's riches. It's his unsearchable riches in chapter 3. And now Paul doesn't say God can do more, but he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. There is so much more of Christ's riches, love, and power that you and I can tap into when we stop seeing God a God who meets our limited expectations and we start seeing Him as the eternal, limitless, immeasurably more kind of God that He really is. So I can be confident when I pray that God is able to do whatever I ask Him to do in prayer. But says Paul, our confidence in God needs to go further than that. When Paul says God can do immeasurably more, what God will choose to do is always in line with His glory. That's where this prayer finishes, verse 21, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. God's glory is the target for all our prayers and petitions. God's glory sets the parameters for how He answers our prayers. That's why God doesn't always do for us what we want Him to do. And we should rejoice in that. If we knew how God works, if we had confidence in His character and in His sovereign understanding of our lives and what it takes to make us like Jesus, we should pray all the more when He doesn't give us what we ask. Our confidence in God is not that of a spoilt child coming to his indulgent parents. We are confident in God because he answers our prayers according to his will, and God's will is good and perfect and pleasing. God is always working for his glory in our lives. He sees the full tapestry of our lives from heaven in a way that we can't possibly see it. Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book, O God, before one of them came to be. God sees all the colors of your life come together in a way that we can't possibly. And He is bringing those colors together to form a perfect work of art, Ephesians 2.10. We are His poema. You remember that? But that work of art is the Christ-likeness that God wants to produce in us. That's what will lead to His glory. So perhaps right now you're praying for some gold in your life, a pay rise, a new job, your son to show more interest in church, the salvation of a family member. But God knows that gray is the color that will go best right now with the tapestry of your life. Perhaps a deep disappointment, a health scare, a fallout with another Christian. These are real hard moments in life, but we need to trust God that He will use those moments to shape you into the person who will bring Him most glory, because that's the end game. And of course, in those really horrible times in life, it's not easy to say that God's will is good and perfect and pleasing. When we pray to heaven and heaven seems like brass, it doesn't feel good and pleasing at all. We can only see His goodness afterwards, or perhaps maybe even not until we reach glory. There are many threads in the story of our lives that seem like they are hanging loose, discordant, whose completion we will not see until the full tapestry is unveiled. But this is the confidence that we can have in the Savior who loves us so much, wide, high, deep, long, a confidence that accepts God's answers to our prayers in whatever way He pleases, and a continuing determination that we will glorify Him in our lives whether He gives us what we want right now or not. That beautiful lady, Elizabeth Elliot, who of course lost her husband very early, Elizabeth Elliot said, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. She really got it. God's ultimate plan is to be glorified. That's how Paul finishes this doxology, verse 21, to him be glory in the church. And where God's glory contradicts my wishes, we must let God be God as he answers our prayers according to his will. We will all have our Gethsemane moments where we need to pray, not my will but thine be done, trusting that God has a bigger picture. Can we learn to pray in every circumstances of our lives? To you be glory, not my will, but yours be done. When we lose our job and the hope of another one isn't, is very distant, not my will, but yours be done. When we're facing health struggles or watching our children suffer, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. When we lose a marriage partner who meant the world to us, can we lift our eyes to heaven and through the tears still say, not my will, but yours be done? The great missionary to India, William Carey, was a a Bible translator, a phenomenal Bible translator, spending hours and hours translating the Scriptures into local Indian dialects, and it was painstaking work over many years. And he housed all his reams of manuscripts in a warehouse. But tragedy struck one night, and the warehouse caught fire. And years of toil were burned to the ground on a single night. And as Carey was walking through the debris and seeing half his life's work in ashes, with his heart broken... He picked up his journal and he wrote a few reflections. He realized that he had become too proud of his own translation work, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, the Lord has brought me low that I might look more simply to Christ, their spiritual maturity. It is saints who have confidence in God that He will do what is good and pleasing, even when it's totally the opposite of what we wish for. It's those saints who will light up heaven and be paraded in front of the angels and demons as God's work of art, as His masterpiece. God does everything that He does for His own glory. And he has chosen to achieve that glory principally through Jesus Christ, his beloved son, and the church, his beloved son's beloved bride. And he has ordained it that your simple Christian life and mine, with all of its ups and downs, with all of its triumphs and failures, will bring him glory on the last day. So, brothers and sisters, may we learn, may we grasp these three great principles from Paul's prayer, principles that can lead us into a deeper communion with God than we have ever known before, the type of communion that transformed Paul's rotten prison cell into a sanctuary for God's glory. We're still studying today, 2,000 years later, the beautiful things he wrote. May God give us reverence to enter His presence, a joyful, intimate reverence May God give us power just to grasp the love of Christ, how deep, wide, long, and high. And may God give us confidence to live for His glory. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Let's take a moment of quiet to think through what God has been saying to us, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll leave this place longing for a life that leads to the glory of the Lord God Almighty. Father in heaven, thank you that that we can call you, Father. You invite us into your presence, that the one who flung stars into space, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, calls us sons and daughters and invites us to to love you, to talk to you, to share our concerns with you. Thank you, Father. But help us as we're doing that to acknowledge that you are the, the great God of glory. You are the Lord Almighty. Help us to do that with reverence. And Father, thank you for this glorious thought that we need to act for power just to grasp how much Jesus loves us. May we grasp the fullness of his love to such an extent that it radiates out of us to others around us in the church and outside the church, how wide and long and deep and high. And Father, we pray above all that you would be glorified To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Thank you, Father, that as we sing now, we join with a heavenly company that we can barely imagine, myriads upon myriads of angels, the spirits of righteous men now made perfect who have lived their lives with all its triumphs and trials and now are basking in the intimacy of your presence in glory. Father, thank you that the worship of earthly mortals can be raised now by your Holy Spirit to the courts of heaven. Help us to praise you with with our lips now and with our lives from here on in until the day you call us and gather us together with all the saints around the globe into that heavenly family, that cosmic family, which is ours through the blood of your precious Son. To you be glory forever and ever. Amen.